<clears throat> so I would like to this evening continue the discussion that Howie started last night about what we're doing here and what does it mean to practice with the natural mind of the Buddha. <clears throat> and, um, and Howie brought up a number of different points that I hope to um, uh, continue to expand. And so I'll begin with uh, a quote from Dogen, Zen Master Dogen, who said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to wake up or awaken or become intimate, depending on the translation. So to, to forget the self is to be awakened by all things or become intimate with all things. To study the Buddha way is to study the self to study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to wake up or become intimate with all things. And so we've been pointing at all of these pieces of practice since we got here, as far as I can tell. We've been talking about what does it mean to practice and what are we focusing on? What are we looking at? What are we examining? What are we exploring? What are we studying in this contemplative fashion? <clears throat> and then what happens as we start to pay attention to each moment of reality, experience, ourselves for the last few days? And so I love the teaching of Dogen, right? To study the Buddha way is to study the self. As far as I can tell, that's what we're doing here, right? We're studying this human experience that we know of as me, right? Or at least I know this one here is me. And then I know the other one is you, but usually you know that you as me. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, and so this is a very normal understanding in Buddhism that we're studying the self. One of the great misunderstandings that seems to get extended is that the Buddha said there's no self. As far as I can tell, he never said that. He talked about self and not self and the value of both, self and not self. And so what we're doing is studying the self 
and seeing how we might discover not self when we forget about self, at least in Dogen's language. And that forgetting about self, not, not totally as how we like to say, oh, we're preoccupied with ourself, or it's about me, it's the me experience, or, right? And when we're not preoccupied with that experience, there's more to be learned, there's more to be discovered about what's actually sitting here that might not be described as me, or mine, or I, in the usual, normal, conventional way we talk about I, me, and mine. <clears throat> and so the teaching of Dogen, which I'm going to, there's more to it, and I'll give you some more a little bit later. But it's, so we're studying the self, and then I'll say it in Eugene language. So to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to relax the identification with self. It's another way to say it, where he says, forget the self. And then to relax that identification, we start to become more intimate with whatever's here, with everything. And that intimacy is an enlightening intimacy. It's an illuminating intimacy because rea the, all of reality has the potential to wake us up. It's not, enlightenment is not in the safe at Spirit Rock. And we're gonna bring it up after you stay here long enough, or, or if you give us enough dana or whatever it is. But really, this is where enlightenment is sitting, is in your seat, our seat, each seat, to be discovered as we study the self, as the doorway to not self and beyond self. And so when I talk about this, um, uh, I, I, again, I love this teaching very much. I've lived with it for many years. And, um, and I know that we've been talking a little about letting go, and it came up in my group today about letting go. And, uh, you know, if we can just let go, then everything's fine and great, good luck. You know, that's not been my success. Um, and and the, what, what I've seen is that we try to uh, take a mechanistic view of letting go. Okay, I'll just let go of that. Oh, I'll let go of that. I'll let go of that. I'll let go of that. I'll let go of this. Oh, I'll let go of that. No, I'll keep the computer. No, <laughs> no but... We'll, we'll let go, we're gonna do it as a mental activity. And if you can do it as a mental activity, which can be done sometimes, you can just say, okay, I'm not gonna hold on to that, whatever the that is. At least for me, whenever I can do that, the that is no big deal. <laughs> I don't care about the that. And so I don't care, so okay, so, you know, so I lose this pad of paper. Look at how easy I let that go, right? <laughs> easy, no problem. But when, <laughs> but, but when I care about something, that's not what happens. 
I can say, oh, I'm going to let go, or I don't care, or I'm not identified. But in fact, I do care, or I do hold on, or I am identified. So what I've seen is letting go happens by studying the self. And by self, now I'm talking about our thoughts, our feelings, our sensations, our ideas, our beliefs, our habits. By studying the self and studying the holding on itself. I don't try to, oh, I'm just going to hold, not hold on. I don't really, I don't try to not hold on to anything. Really. And that's, a, that's like a little Buddhist confession here. But in fact, what I try to do is start to be aware and awake with the experience of holding on and see what happens. And then what I've seen when it, when it gets most interesting is, oh, letting go happens on its own. I don't do it. The tension, the muscle, the grasp, the holding, the desire, the clinging, relaxes and so there's nothing holding on to what's being held on to anymore and that feels freeing to me in my direct experience and so what's being pointed at and Dogen points at it so beautifully to study Buddhism study the self to study the self is to forget the self to forget the self is to become intimate with all things He's pointing at a paradox of practice, a paradox in Buddhism, that there's self and there's not self, and they're both important. Self and not self, both important. And, and, and the part of the paradox, part of the paradox that I've seen is that everybody thinks, oh, not-self is the thing. You know, not-self, totally cool, the, those experience, that experience. But the self and knowing the self is the doorway to not-self. Just like, as Howie was saying last night, dukkha, suffering, is the doorway to the end of suffering. They're not separate in the way we like to cognize thing and c- cognize things and reify things as being oh you know suffering's here but oh freedom's over there we don't see oh freedom comes through suffering they're not actually so separate and what i believe you mentioned last night also and has gotten mentioned a few times is um, the two truths are part of what's being seen when we start to recognize the self and not self reality. These are, these are part of what's called the two truths. Now mostly how he talked about the four noble truths. But there's another Buddhist teaching, very beautiful, called the two truths. And the two truths are pointing talking about recognizing relative and ultimate reality, like self being relative reality. We've all got a self, right? Hi, I'm Eugene, right? And 
we've all got a not-self, meaning not a fixed, enduring identity that lasts forever. And yet there's something here right now that is that not-identity also. And I'll, I'll say a little more about this, but I, I want to give you a little more context on the two truths because it's a beautiful teaching. And here's a, here's a quote, really a kind of poem that's pointing at reality. And so you'll hear this again and again in Buddhism. It's not just giving you the, oh, here's truth number one, truth number two, truth number three, truth number four. That's all great. But then at some point, it starts to point to the magical nature of reality or the mystical nature of what's being pointed at that the Buddha talked about as freedom or liberation or the sure heart's release. Isn't that a nice phrase for awakening? I just, you know, it's, it's the heartfelt way to talk. The Buddha called awakening the sure heart's release, that the heart that lands in itself fully starts to reveal all of reality or display or know all of reality. And when I say all, don't quote me on it in a Western way where it's every detail you're going to know. No, you ha- it means we have the availability of all of reality to discover. That's a better way for me to say it. So this is Nagarjuna, who's pointing at the poetry and the paradox of the two truths. The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths. The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. Should I say it again? The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths, which are of the world, and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on conventions, on relative truth, relative reality, without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. And it's a poem for you to live with, not to figure out every piece of it. Because the living is where the understanding will come. Meaning, and a better way I could say it, practicing with the reality of self and then what's not self or beyond self or here, even though self is here, things happen and it's not us doing it. What's that? 
And as we start to live with that reality of the two truths, which is sitting right in our seat, right? This isn't, again, in the safe at Spirit Rock, where we keep all the other freedom. But it's sitting here for us to start to be aware of both, and, and as, as Nagarjuna says, relying on the conventional, the ordinary, the normal, the natural. Because we think when, if to get the sublime, sublime or the non-selfness, that we've got to do something, you know, take some drugs or something. You know, that's the conventional way, okay. I'll take some LSD and I'll see reality. And you will see a little of reality. But what's being seen is sitting in your seat already. And we want to discover what's here. And we discover it through what's sitting in our seat right here. Thoughts, feelings, ideas, beliefs, our dogmas, our surety, our fantasy, our whatever's happening here. This is where consciousness is, and consciousness is the doorway to the sublime. So this paradox of self and not self. And here's a very simple way to get a sense of the paradox. Or or you could try, let's see uh, if this is helpful. Um, Everybody, move your arm you know, in some way, right? Like I say, move your arm, right? And you do it, right? You're doing it, right? Now don't move your arm for a second. It's great. This is what, the self is good at this. (laughs) It can do some things and, and it can, you know, it has some control over reality. So here now, see, see where the self is when I ask you to, Stop being aware. And I, I mean it quite sincerely. S- stop it, please. <laughs> Can anybody do that? What does it tell you? See, we want to we wanna stay very, stay very intimate with that experience that's happening that you have no control over. Right? No, as far as I can tell, I'm not doing the awareness. It's happening. And really, you know, then the question that comes in my, you know, what do you make of that? given that that's the water that we swim in all the time, is what we know based on our awareness of our body, heart, mind, inside, outside, internal, external reality is being known right now. Thoughts, feelings, memories, plans, ideas, it's all being known. What do you make of what knows that? Is that you? And if it's you, how come you have no control over yourself? Because I know you can move your arm. I've seen that. 
So, and then, and, and I'm not really looking for you to have a conceptual answer. I'm hoping, hoping to encourage your interest, your investigation, your kinesthetic awareness of this experience we call awareness itself or mindfulness or knowing. And we do have, it's not like we have no input with it all, but we don't control the awareness part. We can focus the awareness, you know, or we can direct it places at times, and that's great. Like, you know, focus on your breath. Be aware of your breath right now, right? So we have some input, except with the microphones. Okay, let's try that. So this self-not-self question is an important question in Buddhism. Um, And it's an important question for us because there isn't a permanent self here. And it's very interesting to see what else is here. Especially because we're always interpreting reality based on what happened to us. Have you noticed that? And this was a little bit in the group today. I, you know, I, you could hear it. People are saying, "Oh, well, da 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 da." Then this, ha- you know, how come this hasn't happened, or this, or I thought this was going to happen. We thought that was going to happen because something happened before, and we think it's going to happen again in the same way, because that's how we relate to reality. Very common, normal, not a bad thing but not the end of the picture. The picture is bigger than the self-knowing that we have based on what happened yesterday or five years ago or, or in this human life. Suzuki Roshi said, when I realized no moment could be repeated, when I realized no moment could be repeated, I was enlightened. And what he's pointing at is not a conceptual, oh, no moment can be repeated, but the experiential, no moment is ever repeated. And being in touch, being intimate with that living reality that is never repeated. Even if the content or circumstances can be described similarly or look the same, or you know, we, I had a relationship and now I have another relationship. They're not the same thing, even though we can categorize things like that. So this is part of the what's being what I'm hoping to point at a little bit is the paradox of Dharma itself, or or what I would say the paradox that Dharma is pointing us at about being a human being, and then what happens, because the Dharma is so. Buddhism, in one way, is so commonsensical. Do I get some agreement on that in general? I mean, it's great. Totally commonsensical. It's so commonsensical that it's it's a big deal in our culture and uh, in the West these days, even even if they forget about Buddhism and just talk about mindfulness. It's a big deal. And it's a good thing it's a big deal because everybody gets it. This makes sense. It makes sense to be here because this is the whole deal 
folks, right? I mean, this is life. And this is our whole life right now is this moment. Everything else is a memory or an idea. The only thing that's actually alive, it's, it's right here. And that right here-ness, uh, I, I don't want to, I could get bigger with it, but I don't want to go so far. But, <laughs> well, <laughs> I have too much to try to get through. <laughs> so, the, so the commonsensicalness is paradoxical because the Dharma is also magical. It's pointing at this commonsensical relationship with reality and also the mystical or magical reality or a component which is part of our reality and part of who and what we are. And so it's pointing at reality, right? The studying the self and pointing at what it is to forget the self or let go of the self or relax the sense of self and then to be intimate or enlightened or awaken with all things. And, and so it's, here's another, this is from the Shinshin Ming, the Shinshin Ming, which is a beautiful Zen text. says, if you wish to move in the one way, capital O, if you wish to move in the one way, do not dislike even the world of senses and ideas. Do not dislike the world of the senses and ideas. Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. Now that's a big perspective that's being pointed at. If you wish to move in the one way, it's a euphemism for awake, awakening, if you wish to move in the one way, do not dislike even the world of senses and ideas, the normal reality, so-called normal reality, right? Indeed, to accept them fully is identical with true enlightenment. And this is one of the beauties of the two truths in my interpretation, is the two truths are pointing at one truth that includes the two truths. That the ultimate, and it's better, it's nicely said in the Zen tradition, they say there's relative reality and there's ultimate reality and they're equally true. That's, that's, that's serious good teaching as far as I'm concerned. And so to start to investigate our reality so we can discover the fullness or the breadth or the depth of it right here in this humanness, in this human form. And it's, you know, it's not only in Buddhism. John Cage, who was a great musician and artist, when he talked about what he was doing, he said, he, and he was a musician, he said, I am trying to become unfamiliar with what I am doing. Now that's a nice teaching. I'm trying to become unfamiliar with what I am doing. And we're trying to become familiar to the point where our familiarity takes us beyond the familiar, right? And I mean, the other way I like to say this, I used to be shyer about saying it, but I'm getting more uh, disinhibited. Um, you know, it's 
like I said, it's like having a love affair, the Dharma. It's like having a love affair. And if you have a good love affair, you want to know everything about that person, right? You don't just want to know a little bit. You, you, the love, are like more. Who are they? What are they? How do they think, feel, relate, relax? Do what? Who? Who is this person? And if if you have a really good love affair that lasts for ten, twenty, thirty, forty years, then it's even more amazing to see you still don't know them, and you're still learning about them, because. Who, who are any of us? We're, we're all still learning about ourselves. And so the beauty of the conventional reality and the ultimate reality sitting right here is the doorway for us to discover more about everything or the potential of everything. And our good friend Joseph Goldstein said it this way. He said, the wonderful paradox of the Dharma is that of all these changing phenomena, thoughts, feelings, sounds, tastes, touch, smells, sights, everything, you know, reactions. The wonderful paradox of practice is that all of these changing phenomena as objects of our desire leave us feeling unfulfilled, wanting something. While as objects of mindfulness, they become the very vehicle of awakening. Right? What, and so even the difficulties, I want this to be different. I want the bell to ring like you know, people are talking. We all think that. If you haven't thought that, boy, I bow to you. I've, I've thought that many a time, believe me. You know. <laughs> but, you know, but, but starting to pay attention and be aware of not just the idea, oh, I want the bell to ring, but the desire, the yearning, the craving and the energy that that aliveness is that starts to get more make more intimate practice and more discovery happens as we get closer to the kinesthetic energetic somatic affective heartfelt mind experience that it's not just our idea there's more here. And so another of the paradoxes that we've been examining and will continue to examine and we're working with is the mind, right? And I like to talk about the mind because I think it's, let me see if I want to make sure this is accurate. Well, I, I, don't, I was going to say it, that it's the most difficult thing, but maybe it, it's one of the very difficult things for people to be aware of is their mind. Because we're doing, it's a paradoxical request. We're asking the mind to be mindful of the mind. And we are, like I said, we're so swimming in our, Thoughts, feelings, beliefs, ideas. And here I'm, I've got to add a little context. In Buddhism, the word for mind, chitta, chitta, is translated either as mind or heart. It's the same word, meaning they weren't thought of as two different things in the culture that Buddhism came out of. And just for your own 
my interest and maybe yours. Uh, I had someone, a good friend, uh, Nona, who was an etymologist. And I said, oh, tell me about mind. I want to know how did we get... And, and she said, oh, originally mind wasn't in the head. In Greece, the mind was here, which is exactly what they would say in Asia, right? The mind was in the body. It was a dear, and we've changed, right? We've evolved, I'm not sure, but we've evolved with the kind of individual identity and a little bit of split between heart and mind in, quote, Western cultures. So the mind and the working with the mind, the fact that the mind studies the mind. And part of the paradox, one of my teachers, Hamid Ali says, he always says, paradox means the mind doesn't get it. <laughs> right? Like even though we see it's true, it's a, it's a paradox because it contradicts what our mind thinks. Paradox means the mind doesn't get it. <clears throat> and we all have uh, more than one mind, okay? More than one mind. And the usual, in Buddhism, it's talked about as small mind and big mind. That's one of the ways it's discussed or pointed at. And, um, you know, like Annie, Annie Lamont is really good describing her mind. She says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. <laughs> you know, and, and I assume we've all had that experience because <laughs> we all have minds that we have very little control over, really. Right? I mean, especially you watch it. All we're asking you to do when you sit here is just be aware of what's happening now. And what's your mind doing? <laughs> right? It's doing everything. Thinking, remembering, planning, wishing, fantasizing, you know, ignoring, arguing, fighting, making love. It's all happening in your mind. Right? Just because just we said pay attention to what's happening now. <laughs> and because we aren't in control of our mind. <clears throat> And so there's other perceptions also in the West, uh, kind of the opposite of Annie, from Fritz Perls, who said, lose your mind, lose your mind, and come to your senses. Lose your mind and come to your senses. That's a beautiful understanding of one way to start to come more into w what it is that is actually sitting here. It's not just all mind. And here, I'll give you, I, I forgot I, to print this out, and so you're seeing me do something I've never done before, which is use my computer to Dharma talk, but you know, it happens. Um, and so I'm gonna read you a, an instruction from the Buddha about how to practice. And the instruction is in one of my beautiful favorite Dharma teachings, it's suttas. It's the teaching of, of, of Bahia. And Bahia's full name was Bahia of the Bark Cloth. Bark, B-A-R-K. Bahia of the Bark Cloth. 
And Bahia was a wandering renunciate who was seeking freedom and doing it on his own. And at one point he's sitting and he, he has this thought, question, wish, you know, well, how am I doing? He asked the gods, right? And one of the gods comes down, which can happen to you. It happened more in, in you know, Asia at that period of time. But <laughs> believe me, it can happen here. So don't totally doubt it. Um, and comes down and says, no, no, you're doing the wrong practice, Bahia. And Bahia said, well, really? Well, what is, it, you know, what do I need to do? And, and, they, and the, the God says, oh, there's somebody who's realized what you're looking for. And Bahia said, well, who is that? And the guy says, the, I don't know if it's a guy or a gal God, but the God says, um, uh, you know, the, there's this Buddha who's over here, you know, a long ways away from Bahia, but Bahia's very devoted. And so Bahia says, Bahia says, great, thank you. And he, that night, he goes and finds the Buddha, which totally, he travels in mythological time, meaning he goes hundreds of miles in one night walking. And he ends up the next morning at about 11.30 at, at the you know, camp of the Buddha and his disciples. And he asks, where's the Buddha? I want to talk to him. And finally somebody tells him, and there's the Buddha. And the Buddha's walking to go to alms rounds, right? He's walking to get his food. He's got his bowl. And, and Bahia says, excuse me, sir, please, I came to see you, meet you. Please give me teaching. And the Buddha, who's very normal, he says, uh, I'm happy to give you teaching, but not now. And uh, is like, and the Buddha starts to walk away. And, uh, and Bahia is a very determined practitioner like all of you. And so he's like, well, wait, 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 excuse me. I came a long way and da-da-da. And please, I would like the, could I get the teachings now? And the Buddha's like, uh, well, I appreciate the fact that you came, but I can't do it right now. I'm happy to talk to you later. And Bahia is very determined. Buddha again starts to walk away and Bahia pulls the trump card. He, he's got his own, you know, uh, inner wisdom. He says, wait, wait, excuse me, sir. We don't know if later you will still be here or I will still be here. So please give me the, the teachings now. He pulls impermanence on the Buddha <laughs> as the trump card. And the Buddha gets it and says, okay, sit down, I'll give you a teaching. <laughs> so you can pull that out sometimes. <laughs> and here's what he says. He says, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. So he's speaking to all of us. In the seen will be merely what is seen. In the heard will be merely what is heard. In the sensed will be merely what is sensed. In the cognized will be merely what is cognized. Please train yourself in this way, Bahia. And then he says, so, and, and uh, the way I always heard it when I was a kid, a young man, and this is really, I'm quoting Joseph Goldstein, he used to say, in the seen will be just what is seen. In the heard, just what is heard. In the sensed, just what is sensed. In the cognized, just what is cognized. 
pointing to the simplicity of practice, right? And then he says, when bahia in the scene will be merely what is seen, heard, merely heard, sensed, merely sensed, in the cognized, merely cognized, then bahia, you will not be with that. When bahia, you are not with that, then bahia, you will not be in that. When bahia, you are not in that, then bahia, you will be neither here, nor there, nor in between. Just this, just this is the end of suffering. Okay, should I read that last part again? So, when you practice, when in the scene is just what is seen, in the heard just what is heard, when the, in, the, in the sense just what is sensed, in the cognized just what is cognized, then you will not be in that, and you will not be with that, and when you are not in that or with that, then bahia, you will be neither here nor there or beyond they have, nor in between. Just this is the end of suffering. So he's pointing to this simplicity of reality, which is so difficult for us. Right? It's really difficult. And so and I'll say a little more in a second about that, because that's all we're asking you to do here. When you have a sensation, it's a sensation. When you have a thought, it's a thought. When you have a feeling, it's a feeling. When you have a smell, it's just a smell. And if you can start to land in the simplicity of that direct phenomenology, you will not be here in the usual way. You will be here in this very intimate way with the simplicity of reality because there's no, you're not adding on anything to the reality that's here. And then the Buddha says, when you are not here or not there or in between, just this is the end of suffering. And so he's pointing at something that's available to all of us that's pointed at as part of the selfless nature of reality. That the sense of self is a really good thing, an important thing, and is what we use to get to the end of suffering. But part of the end of suffering is a little bit the end of the usual identification, attachment, fixation, of who we're taking ourselves to be. And it doesn't mean you have to get rid of the relative sense of self. We're not saying that at all. We just see, oh, that's not the end of the story of what's here. That the awareness that's knowing everything without you doing anything may be telling us something more about the story, about what's actually here not just the story of Eugene and Eugene's life and past and ups and downs and good and bad and everything. That's all. That, believe me, I take that very seriously, but not too seriously, hopefully. <coughs> so the... And again, what, what gets pointed at for Bahia, 
with just being with this simplicity is the mind unifying with what it knows. Or I could say it maybe a little better, the awareness and what's being known being the totality of reality moment by moment for a while. <clears throat> and it begins to point at a capacity that we have, that everybody has, and that we're not so familiar with. We're not trained to pay attention in this way. Little bit we are, you know, and, and, and we all can. So you ever, like one of the great things are the arts, is somewhere where we land in the, sim the fullness of what we're doing. Like if you're a dancer or you're a musician, when you're doing the music and you're really doing it, that's all that's happening. But you're not there in the usual self-identified way. It's just the music is there. Or dance, same thing. If you see a great dancer, they've done years of practice, no doubt, but then they just give themselves to the dance and you don't even see the practice. You see the magic of reality dancing. <clears throat> and so it's important to, for us all to start to pay attention to the mind so we can see the conventional mind and what's called big mind in Buddhism, or the small mind and big mind. It's talked about also even in the West. This is from uh, Albert Einstein. He said, the intuitive mind is a wonderful gift. The intuitive mind is a wonderful gift. And the rational mind is a faithful servant. The intuitive mind is a wonderful gift, and the rational mind is a faithful servant. But then he goes on, he said, it's odd in the West how we have come to honor the servant and ignore the gift. Mm -hmm. Right? That's a beautiful understanding. So the usual mind, and this, you all know what it is, but I'm going to say just a couple words asking you to pay a little bit of attention to it. It's cognition. It's thinking, it's logical and rational and analytic or pragmatic and intelligent and imaginative. Thinking, planning, commentating, remembering. The, the mind, the content of the mind, thought. How about this? Just try this on for a second. You are not your thoughts. That, notice how that lands in you, or, or not. Maybe it doesn't land. Maybe you don't agree or don't believe. That's not your experience. Maybe you are your thoughts. But just to, I always have found it totally fascinating to see, at least for me, I'm not my thoughts. In fact, I have so many thoughts, it's unbelievable. I could never do that. <laughs> I don't have, I'm too short to have so many thoughts. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, it's like, I mean, I could look for any excuse, really, because where do all the thoughts come from, <laughs> right? God, God only knows. But they come on their own. Why do I think they're mine? 
right? I mean, they happen here. I have some relationship to them. So in Buddhism, be starting to become aware of thought and seeing, oh, there's the mind that's aware of thinking. That's not the thought itself. The mind that's aware, the awareness is bigger than the thought. The thoughts arising in the space of awareness. And I just have to throw in a couple things because I like it. One of the important terms you should just hear is papancha. And it's a Pali word. And it's talking about the conceptual proliferation of mind that happens for everybody. And especially as when we sit here and try to relax and not do anything, right? It just happens on its own. Papancha. Anybody here not have papancha in the last couple of days? Well, it's, I like the word. I'm not sure why. Partly because it's a little, it comes from another language and it's pointing at something that's part of practice, a natural, normal part of practice. The rambling or discursive mind and the thoughts. And uh, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was one of the great teachers of the last century, um, Buddhadasa said, when he was asked about modern civilization, what did he understand about modern civilization? What did he see? He said three words, lost in thought. That's That's a powerful teaching. That's what he saw when he looked at especially, I'm assuming, Western or modern civilization, even his, in his culture, that people are lost in thought. And it's such a beautiful thing, as, as Einstein says, oh, it's such a great servant, our thinking. I mean, we thought of Spirit Rock. Somebody thought of this, right? And somebody designed this, and somebody thought of the design. I mean, it's beautiful, the, the process, the magic of thought. But it's not the whole story of who we are and what we are. <clears throat> and one of the things I, I just want to encourage you to be especially aware of is the judging mind and those thoughts or that affect where we judge ourselves, oh, we're a bad meditator or we're a bad whatever it is or we're the wrong or we're a mistake or there's something wrong with us because that is delusion, right? We may not be an excellent meditator, but the fact that you're here, that's good enough, really. And being a, and there's a difference between being skillful with something and being judgmental of it. Right? We want to discern, oh, how are we doing? And, you know, are we, are we being aware or not being aware? But the judgment, the, and when I'm using the word judgment, I mean self-critical, attacking, unkind thoughts, that we do not want to buy that. That is the most, in, in my, Eugene's opinion, the most, the biggest obstacle to spiritual fulfillment is the judging mind because it's just totally not true what's sitting here is so beyond what we know 
and then the judgments as if we're, there's something bad about us, wrong about us. We, we all make mistakes, no doubt about it. We all have plenty to learn about how to live ethically and consciously and compassionately and kindly and skillfully. But everybody I know who's here has been doing the best they can, and we all will make mistakes. So we don't want to add the critical judgment onto it. We want to be able to discern mistakes so we can learn from each moment and keep growing, keep maturing, keep waking up. Let's see. And then this big mind, which is pointed at in Buddhism many ways. There's one of my favorite Buddhist quotes from the Lankavatara Sutra. Said, things are not what they seem. Things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. <laughs> it's pointing at the two truths, the relative and absolute. Things are not what they seem, nor are they otherwise. They're both true. And this is one of the things Buddhism, one of the impacts Buddhism will happen is it keeps opening our heart and mind so that paradox becomes more familiar, not, oh, there's something right and something wrong, or, or why is this? We actually can metabolize the paradox in a way where it makes sense to us, even if we can't explain it in cognitively. <clears throat> and so this big mind, beautiful. Here, I'll, re I'll read you a few things. I have, a, I've, you know, I got a little excited about all the great quotes there are to read you. So I've got a bunch of them, but you won't get all of them. And how he read two of them already, but I'm still going to repeat that anyways, because <laughs> they're worth repeating. <clears throat> Here's a little about big mind. He said, luminous is this mind. Just that, what a beautiful teaching from the Buddha. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining and it gets obscured by our attachments, identifications, beliefs, habit. It gets obscured by what we know, so we sometimes don't see what's knowing. Right? And so people don't even think to cultivate this luminosity. Then he goes on, he says, luminous is this mind brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments, of the identifications, of the beliefs. This the follower of the way truly understands. So for them, there is cultivation of this mind. And here you have the paradox of the two truths, relative mind, ordinary mind, everyday mind, Eugene mind, you know, what, the mind everybody kind of functions with, and then ultimate mind, which is right here also. You know, and when when uh, Howie was talking, he has this other quote I love that said, the Buddha is your mind. The Buddha is your mind. 
and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. That's, you know, that, we're, we're giving you the whole teachings and these are teachings to be lived with, not just made, you know, checked off on your to-do list, right? It's like, see what happens for the next year as you pay attention to your mind instead of just believing it. Or, you know, believe what you need to believe, you know, the rational, logical, what needs to get done, yeah, that's fine. But also keep noticing you're aware of the, all of that and the awareness is not bound to what it's aware of. And I've said this, I think I said it in this room before, the awareness is not bound to what it's aware of, but also it came up again in the small groups. Because we're so used to being identified with our experience. And there's the relative identities totally make sense. But it's not the whole picture. It's all just happening on its own. The awareness, the mind, life, body. We're not doing it, really. Here, and I'll give you a very personal, my experience. And I could be wrong, but I'll give you my experience. So I had a near-death experience a few years ago. I had a bad accident, and it was... It was serious, very serious, and uh, I was in hospital five weeks. You know, I had a bicycle accident, for those who don't know me. And and um, <clears throat> somewhere in the first week in the hospital, certain things would happen um, that only I knew about. And how I knew about them, I have no idea, because I was unplugged. When you have the kind of brain injury I had, the usual sense of self is totally unplugged. I didn't know how to do much of anything. I mean, there w I did know how to do things, but I didn't know how I, I didn't know I was even doing things, right? So, but in the middle of the night, especially some things would happen. And one of the things that happened was it became clear to me, and this was not a thinking became, this was just became clear that I might die. That was just clear, that I, I might live and I might die. And it was clear, and I didn't know which was going to happen. And I never did anything like, oh, I want to live, or I'm going to live, or any of that. Because sometimes people say to me, well, you, you must have done it because you lived. I didn't do it. I didn't do anything. Reality is way beyond me. And it's sitting right here, reality, right? Reality did whatever reality does, which is, I'm alive. and I'm happy to be alive. I'm not, I'm not dissing with reality at all. But, but who knows what happens or how things happen or what is the reality of what's sitting in our seats? Let's keep being open to seeing what we discover as our mind starts to open. <clears throat> so the last piece that I'll read you is from a friend of ours. I think, I think you know Norman? Norman, yeah, good, good friend. Um, and he talked about his practice and struggling with his practice. 
And he said, uh, his teacher used to say to him, trust yourself, trust yourself totally, absolutely. And, and for Norman, the, the idea rang true. And so he took it to heart and he tried to live his life that way, you know, trusting himself totally. He said, but it's pretty hard because the more I really tried to stake everything on myself, the more I could see myself about as solid as smoke, right? The more and the more confused I got. If I tried to trust my opinions absolutely, I could see how much they shifted day to day based on what I was reading or who I was talking to or what my experience lately had been. If I tried to trust my basic ideas about who I was, I, would I could immediately see that these were just ideas. They, were not, they could not support the weight of my whole trust. They were too flimsy, so I was pretty mixed up. And then it dawned on me, it dawned, that I had misunderstood the teaching. It was not to trust myself as self. It was not to trust myself as self but to trust my experience as it arose. Trust my experience as it arose. And my experience consisted not only of what was inside my head, but of many other things. When I saw the clouds, clouds were my experience. When I heard a bird, the song was my experience. When someone told me I was a, what a jerk I was, that was my experience. Not something coming from someplace else to be defined out and defended against. So in this way, I worked very hard at trusting my experience absolutely, which is part of what we're saying here in the scene just the scene. In the hurt, trust, oh, there's the hearing. Here's the feeling. Trust the, the phenomena of what's happening. <clears throat> um, and he said, I worked very hard in trusting my experience absolutely, even my mixed up thinking right to the end, staying with it, not glancing off, and finally, I could find always at the end of my experience, whether I liked the experience or not, a sky-like mind. He said he stayed with his mixed-up thinking all the way to the end, staying with it, not glancing off, and all the way, and always at the end of my experience, whether I liked the experience or not, I could uh, not, I found the sky-like mind in the very, in which every experience was very broad and very deep. So let's sit for a moment, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.